Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. This is your host, John Donatich, director of Yale University Press. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with father and daughter, renowned novelist Amos Oz and history professor Fania A. Salzberger, authors of the new book, Jews and Words. Amos and Fania, welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. I'm curious about the the genesis of this project. Fania, you wrote that the conversation started when you were just three years old. Was it a decidedly joint father-daughter project from the beginning? As you just mentioned, this project began dozens of years ago when one of us was three years old or so. And ever since then, we were debating and discussing Jewish texts, Jewish philosophical ideas, Jewish realities. And the conception of this book is very much the result of an enterprise of Felix Posen of London, who is a militant, secular, Jewish, crusading Jewish activist, and who has established a project of 10-volume collection of secular Jewish thought and art. Just to recap on what has been said, um, I think the authors of the present book, both my father and I, are not militant and not crusading, but we are very adamant about being Jews and having very strong Jewish identity and full enjoyment of the riches of Jewish traditions and present-day dynamics without the added value of believing in the creator of the universe. Interesting. The um, the narrative voice in Jews and Words is remarkably unified, though I did sense a subtle and, I, I would say, productive tension uh, between the voices. Can you tell us about, the, about how the, you co-wrote this book? What was the process like? Well, it stemmed very naturally indeed from the conversations we've had for years now. And since the major thesis of the book is that Jews have survived thanks to books and children and to conjoining of books and children at a very young age, it made a lot of sense to us that this would be a parent and child or father and daughter discussion. However, uh, not to forget, it is also a discussion between a historian of ideas, me, my field is intellectual history, and a novelist and literary scholar. So I think that we have both put our inputs along the biological conversation or family conversation between us, but very much also along the scholarly and cerebral part of our ongoing dialogue between an artist, a novelist, and a historian who loves and embraces facts rather than fiction. And you, you talk about a Jewish model of intergenerational conversation. Do you mean this as a, a conversation between teacher, rabbi, and student, parent and child, ancient text to contemporary reader? How would you characterize your own relationship to books as individuals and as a family? Well, I'll give you my own answer and then pass you on to my father and co-author. But uh, from my perspective, it is certainly an all of the above. It is a teacher or rabbi to student discussion. It is a parent to child discussion. 
It is an answer back discussion. The student responding and arguing against the rabbi, the child responding and arguing sometimes against the parents. So it goes both ways. And of course, in the traditional Jewish household, you often had three or more generations deep in conversation and not always a very tranquil conversation, very often a great argument, a great debate. That was part of the fun. Well, you will find very often in Jews and Words that the historian amongst us maintains so-and-so, while the novelist amongst us maintains otherwise. This is a dialogical book. It's a conversation. It's a debate. It's an argument. <coughs> and there are one or two points of disagreement between the co-authors. However, this is very traditionally Jewish. This is a reconstruction of the Jewish dinner table, where two or three generations were sitting around the same table, debating, arguing, interpreting and reinterpreting interpreting the same old texts. So it is a conversational book. Hmm. Amos, uh, Fania described the conversation uh, as sometimes as having a certain temperament, uh, getting close to having an argument. How did you? How would you describe the the, the flavor or or the temperament of these conversations in your family? Well, there is no intergenerational hierarchy in our family. Ever since Fania and my other children were very, very young, they were encouraged to challenge my opinions and their mother's opinions. They were encouraged to criticize. They were encouraged to express individual and personal opinions about everything. And we have been uh, not only a family, but also at the same time a fiery collection of arguments. Mm -hmm. Having a 16-year-old daughter, I would say sometimes there's no choice. Sometimes there is no choice, but uh, we have learned to draw delight from it. We have never regarded this as a burden or as a liability or as a passing trouble. We have always enjoyed the variety of opinions around the dinner table. I completely agree. Well, in order to to remain a a Jewish family, Jewish families relied on words, as someone wrote in the book. Uh, What makes the, the, the Jewish relationship with words so distinct, in your opinion? Yes, the distinctiveness of the Jewish relationship, family relationship with words. Uh, Let me begin by saying that um, books, uh, certainly fiction, novels, often, almost always home on the dysfunctional and on dysfunctional families. They are the greatest subject matters of literature as we know it. However, we have something to say about functional families. And we think that every functioning family, even to misparaphrase Tolstoy, every happy family, is distinct by the fact that it can put disagreements into words and leave them on the level of words. And I think this is what many families we know, including my our own, has done with disagreements. So putting things into words is an ancient and very pacific tradition. It is a tradition that is possibly the ultimate opposite of violence both on the family level and on more broader social levels. Having said that, and responding directly to the question of what makes the Jewish case distinct, it is not only having a way with words. So many other cultures, so many other civilizations have ways with words, and each culture that I know across the globe has lore 
folklore that is being transmitted orally from parents to children and from grandparents to grandchildren. This is not distinct. What made the Jews distinct in pre-modern times was the fact that our uttered words were words that had already been written in books. And that is quite unusual for pre-modernity. It was not just oral lore. There was plenty of that, obviously, you know, from recipes to quips to jokes to quotations. But alongside the oral lore that we share with each and every other culture, we also had words that were already in writing for two and a half millennia now. And that was unusual. This also explains why I think that we think the Jewish nationhood, the Jewish nation, is ancient. You know, we have recently been told by some scholars, postmodernist scholars, post-Zionist scholars, that there is no such thing as a Jewish nation, nation that it is a mere invention, uh, they would like to say a devious invention of modern times, of Zionism, you know, sorts of modern agendas. We think this is utterly wrong. Because if nationhood, by definition, relies on the printed word, as we have been told by modern theorists such as Benedict Anderson or Eric Hobsbawm, if modern nationhood relies on the printed word, it might be modern for many other nations, but it's not at all modern for us. We have had the printed word, our printed books, since early antiquity. And around those printed words, we have formed a nation which is made distinct by its text line rather than by its bloodline. Let me just hand you on to my co-author responding to the same question. Just a brief remark. The Irish have a way with words. The Italians have a way with words. The Arabs have a way with words. We are not spatial about it. But what is so special about the Jewish tradition is that for thousands of years we had nothing but words. We had nothing but texts. We had no country. We had no shrines. We had no monuments. We had no heroes. The only thing we had for generations upon generations were texts passed on around the family table and in the learning houses from one generation to the next, between the generations and inside the generations. It was our one and only uh, substance for many generations. And so it continues. And I guess and that, so it continues. And I would, I would ask then um, your, about your own reading habits. Uh, what do you read and do you still read together? We read. We don't read together. We read separately, but we discuss what we read. We very often read the same books simultaneously at the same time, and we discuss the book with the books we read. It's very common in our family that the whole family, parents, children, even grandchildren, read the same text and discuss them, and very often disagree about the interpretation or about the evaluation of the texts. And is this a relationship apparent in Jewish writing throughout the diaspora or specifically in Israel or even to works written in Hebrew? No, Israel in this respect is a continuation of the diaspora. Ever since the Jews began to write books and to read books, they were discussing them, debating them, interpreting them, reinterpreting them, and counterinterpreting them. This has been the most favorite Jewish pastime for the last 3,000 years at least. Except for eating. Except for eating. Ed's funny and she's right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there was no strict 
dividing line between eating and reading because books were discussed over the dinner table. And women were allowed in. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, well, you know, books appeared on the kitchen table in Christendom after Martin Luther, to put it concisely. Before that, the scriptures belonged in the church. It was Luther and his vernacular translation that brought the Bible to kitchen tables up and down Europe. In the Islamic world, I'm not sure how many books ever got to the family kitchen table. In the Jewish world, there were books, um, symbolically speaking, on the kitchen table since ancient times. So also available to the mother and to the daughter of the family, not only to the father and to the son. And I think that made a tremendous difference over the years. So we do, when we begin to have tidy data of literacy, uh, which is early modern times really, we are becoming increasingly aware of the higher literacy, the impressive literacy literacy of Jewish women, not only in Europe, but also in North Africa and the Middle East. By the time European universities open, both to Jews and to women, very late in the day, of course, in the late 19th century, by the time they do open, the Jewish women are so well prepared. They come from such a lineage of female literacy that you do not have to wait one or two or three generations for a Hannah Arendt to emerge. Hannah Arendt shows up as a student in Heidelberg 10 or 15 years after it opens to Jews and to women. They are there. They are ready. They are all set to become prominent intellectuals in the 20th century. Hmm. It's an interesting point when you think about Jewish culture being spread over so many cultures and languages, in fact. Um, Do you think that there is um, a a special relationship uh, to Jewish culture and to works written in Hebrew? And is that diluted, perhaps, in in, in any translation? Well, the role and the centrality of the Hebrew language is a focal point of our book. And the question whether Hebrew can be translated into other languages effectively the languages of the Jews now, of course, other languages such as Ladino and Yiddish, and to other universal languages is an open question in our minds. Well, let me first say something about literary translation in general. Translating a work of literature is like playing a violin concerto on the piano. (laughs) It can be done, it can even be done successfully on one strict condition. Never try to force the piano to produce the sounds of the violin. That's why I've always been saying to all my translators who translate me into 41 different languages, for God's sake, be unfaithful in order to be loyal. Mm -hmm. This is the secret of good translation. Now, Hebrew is difficult. Hebrew has a specific system of tenses, different than the system of tenses in English and presumably in other European languages. A different system of tenses means a different sense of reality and perhaps a different notion of of time altogether. Moreover, Hebrew is a very condensed and compact algebraic language. Everything that is translated from Hebrew into English is becoming automatically 30% longer, including the Bible, including our own book. So translation is a subtle and fine art. But throughout the generations, Jews have been translating. They have been translating Hebrew into Aramaic, Aramaic into Yiddish, and into Ladino, and into Jewish Arabic, and into other Jewish languages, and also into foreign languages. So 
very much it is very much in in place to say that Jews were agents of translation of their own culture and their own civilization into other languages. I like your distinction very much about being uh, unfaithful uh, to the original text. There, the Latinate uh, root for translation uh, is very very close uh, to betray or to be a traitor. Yes, it's very interesting. And there's, and there's a traditore, traditore. Exactly, and there's a wonderful uh, medieval theological point that says that uh, the, uh, that uses the word translate as uh, a conveying of the body unto heaven without corruption of the soul. Yeah, it's very nice. I've been asked once, what is the single most important human invention? And I said, it's not the fire, and it's not the wheel, it's translation. Mm. Were it not for translation, we'll still be fighting village against village and neighborhood against neighborhood. I completely agree. Um, you, you emphasize that readers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, are invited to read this book. Yeah. And what can a person unfamiliar with Jewish cultural traditions be able to take away after reading it? Well, in the first place, it's a playful book. It's written partly tongue-in-cheek. And it's about reading as much as it is about Jews. It's about the blessings of readings and the delights of readings and the cultural and familial value of reading. It's a book for readers. It's a book for every curious reader who is curious about the power of words to change lives. And funny, anything to add? Yes, I'm sure Fania has something to add. By definition, Fania has something to add. <laughs> ever since I know her, ever since she was three years old, she has something to add. I shall not condescend to teasing. <laughs> uh, let me can I quickly say something about translation and then going back to saying uh, something about the nature of our book and continue to the next question. Is that okay? Fabulous. My scholarly work, as I said, I'm a historian of ideas, and my first book is actually titled Translating the Enlightenment, in which I analyzed what happened when political books written in one language, in my case the English of the Scottish Enlightenment, were translated into another contemporary language, the German Enlightenment, and the meaning of much of the terminology and concepts changed in translation. It was not lost in translation, but it shifted and became something different in translation. The Germans understood the ideas very differently from the original Scottish authors, for better and for worse. So translation is always an act of creation or recreation, and sometimes it has great benefits. We are extremely looking forward to the translations of our books into several other languages. Currently we have German and we have Dutch and we have French and Italian and hopefully Chinese and Swedish and Portuguese. With regard to the book itself, can I just add that what we have done, tried to do in this little book is to give the reader a similar um, pleasure, almost a corporeal pleasure of the kind that Jewish children have had for many hundreds of years when they first went to study the alphabet with the rabbi in the tiny schoolroom or cheder. And the first day, the first letter, the aleph, was covered by their mothers with candy, honey, in East Europe, almonds and raisins, or in North Africa, with delectable marzipan, so that the alphabet will taste sweet. I think this goes quite a long way 
to explain the Jewish joy with words, with reading, and with books. And with food, my co-author is adding, mm-hmm. absolutely. So in this book, we tried to offer some of what my own boys called brain candies to the reader in order to give them a sense of that old, almost physical pleasure. It's a lovely image. Um, you argue that there's a, a, a chain of works, a kind of text line outlining the continuous influence earlier Jewish writers have on their successors. Do you feel as if the cultural relationship has evolved in any way? Well, the cultural relationship has certainly uh, evolved. And of course, now in our modernist and postmodernist age, we are no longer um, uh, inhabiting the world of Bible and Talmud as the biblical and Talmudic protagonists have inhabited it. I think they also felt, certainly the Talmud felt, a very powerful sense of continuity by then, the Bible was a millennium old, or some parts of it were more than a millennium old. So that was definitely already a text line. In our case, of course, our text lines are far more um, complicated and mangled and interwoven with many, many things, both Jewish and non-Jewish, both literary and non-literary, verbal and non-verbal. There is a great deal of complication in the current Jewish textuality, which I think is a good metaphor for textuality in general. Perhaps this is a good place to add that what I think is becoming apparent to us inhabitants of the postmodern world of the 21st century is that the text line is not about Jews alone. It is not for Jews alone. Every reader wherever she or he may be, in whatever language they are, are part of the game of the intertextuality that we are talking about. It is not an inner Jewish game anymore, and perhaps it never has been. Well, for thousands of years, the immediate connection between a Jew from Yemen and a Jew from Lithuania, a Jew from North Africa and a Jew from Persia, would be the texts. They shared the same texts. They were well read in the same texts, and they could discuss the same texts in the same language, Hebrew, which was not a living language, but which they all knew and all could use. Today, as Fania says, this intertextuality, this textual collection, uh, brings together educated people from all over the world. In this respect, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Jew. And you don't have to be a Jewish to enjoy this book about Jews and words, because it is a book about intertextuality as much as it is a book about Jews. Mm. Let me um, just ask you, uh, since you've written about this so so often and so well, this, this past uh, Thanksgiving weekend, um, uh, which we celebrated in the United States, many of us uh, sighed a, a, a deep uh, sigh of relief when the ceasefire was called between Israel and, and, and Palestine. Can can you tell uh, us about your personal sense of, of what just happened and how this fits your idea of, of Judaism as a civilization? Well, the conflict between Israeli and Palestinian is essentially a simple one. It's a real estate dispute. It's not an intercultural conflict. It's not a clash between civilizations. It's not a religious holy war, although the fanatics on both sides are trying to turn it into a holy war. 
but essentially it is and it remains a real estate dispute, whose land. And such a dispute can only be resolved by a painful compromise, painful for both sides, by a partition and by a two-state solution. The Gaza ceasefire is a step in the right direction. Will it hold? I don't know. It's difficult to be a prophet coming from the land of the prophets. We have too much competition in the prophecy business in our country. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a good, it's a good thing that the hostilities ceased for a while. Sooner or later, there will be two states. There will be Israel next door to Palestine. And both the Israelis and the Palestinians will have to give up, give up some of their claims, some of their dreams, some of, them, some of their yearnings, some of their rightful hopes. But compromise is painful by definition. There is no such thing as happy compromises. Mm-hmm. Do you feel optimistic? Uh, if I may quote one joke from the book, there are quite a few, and I will not uh, encumber you with all of them. But we do have that Jerusalem rabbi standing in front of the wailing wall, the western wall in Jerusalem, and praying for peace between Jews and Arabs. After 30 years of praying for peace between Jews and Arabs, this BBC reporter approaches him and says, Well, Rabbi, how does it feel to be praying for peace uh, in front of the wailing wall for the last 30 years? Like talking to a brick wall, answers the rabbi. And uh, at the deep end, because all the jokes in our book have a deep end of some sort, it is not to the wall that we are talking. We are talking to one another. We Jews have been talking to one another for many, many generations, often in disagreement, but put into words rather than violence. And I think that both my co-author and I are praying for the day in which Palestinians and words would be part of the story too, not only Palestinians writing their own historical narratives in their words, this is already happening, but words becoming the main conveyor of disagreement and eventually of agreement between Jews and Arabs. Words are our vessels at the end of the day. And then we shall not be talking to brick walls anymore. Well, that's a, a, a very wonderful way to, to end the conversation. I want to thank you both for, uh, for joining us today. Um, I think that uh, the sort of compounded and complex delight uh, that's in the book was very much in evidence in our conversation today, and I thank you uh, for that. Thank you very much, and thanks go to Yale University Press for this wonderful edition of Jews and Words. Excellent. Thank you, John, for your good questions. Thank you for your conversation. And above all, thank you for publishing our book in such a beautiful, physically beautiful and editorially beautiful way. Thank you very much, and thank all of you. Appreciate that.